Well, good morning, church. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John. 1 John is tucked away in the back, kind of most of the last few books of the New Testament. 1 John is a letter the Apostle John wrote. Uh, I think John would have written five books of our New Testament. Uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So we're going to be looking at 1st John, and Lord willing, working through this letter over the course of the summer together. It's good to be back in a book and walk through a book together and looking forward to 1st John. Um, I remember 20 years ago in starting ministry, 1st John was one of the first books I preached through. I haven't preached through it since then. Uh, I'm not sure it'll be any better than it was 20 years ago, but uh, I remember reading a commentary and somebody saying that 1 John is one of the most difficult books to preach through. And I thought, wow, what a way to start ministry, right? With the hardest, one of the hardest ones to preach through. And the reason is, as you'll find, is it's not a very linear thought book like many of the letters we find in the New Testament, uh, but rather kind of circular in its argumentation. It kind of returns back to, to similar themes time and time again. And you'll kind of see that and you'll think, so four weeks from now when you're saying, didn't we just cover that two weeks ago? Well, yes, we did, but he's going to talk about it again. And so uh, it's a great uh, book for us to consider. A lot, of, a lot of good things we find in the book of 1 John, and I'm looking forward to our time in it together. Well, this morning our text will be 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. With that in mind, I want to read these four verses. These are words that John wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete let's pray father indeed may you instruct us in your word today that our joy may be complete in christ lord give us understanding of these words help us to see them hear them receive them Respond in a way that pleases you. So, Lord, we ask now for your help and aid. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a day when misinformation is all around us. It's kind of the day of information, misinformation, right? There's all kinds of confusion, distortions, inaccuracies that exist today in a way that seeks to deliberately influence or sway us in a certain way. This word, misinformation, is kind of a, a buzzword of our day and time. But I wanted to remind us this morning that misinformation did not originate with the last election or with some Russian bot. It's been around from the beginning. It was myth, misinformation that ultimately the devil used to tempt Adam and Eve to turn their backs upon God. Sin enters the world through misinformation, the result being brokenness and chaos and death. Once sin entered the world, things have only grown worse, 
more confusion, more distortion, more deception, more chaos. As we think about this reality of misinformation and the confusion that exists in its wake, one of the things that has been true from a long time ago, and one of the things that John was dealing with here was the fact that Jesus himself has often been a target of misinformation, a target. In fact, that's existed for centuries. A lot of the, the early confessions, a lot of the early creeds were attempts to correct wrong views and wrong teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he's been a constant target of this. People for centuries have misunderstood him, have confused him, have ignored him, and outright denied him as he's revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And one of the questions that, that often comes about that we need to answer is, how do we know we have the real truth about Jesus? How do we know we have the real Jesus here? That's an important question because there's been all kinds of distortions about Jesus since he walked the earth, if not before, even with misunderstanding prophecy. So how do, we under, how do we know we have the real thing? How do we know that our information about Jesus is correct? And what does that correct information about Jesus lead us to? Well, that's one of the very reasons John penned this letter. In John's day, there was a lot of confusion starting to emerge regarding Jesus. This is John writing after Jesus has ascended back into heaven, probably 90 AD, somewhere in there. So he's, he's writing much, much decades after Jesus' earthly ministry and after his death and resurrection and ascension back to the Father. He's writing this, and because he's writing to a group of believers, likely around, uh, scattered around with house churches in, in Ephesus, he's writing because many people are walking away from the faith are leaving the church, they're, they're leaving, and part of the reason they're leaving, many reasons, but one of the main reasons is their confusion about who Jesus is. We'll see a little bit about that later on in our text. So think about that. Even just 60 to 70 years after Jesus ascends to heaven, there is confusion and distortion around who Jesus is and what he came to do. This letter is John's inspired effort to respond to the misinformation that existed about Jesus, which led many people to abandon their faith, or th that led to confusion of true believers in the church and them being uncertain or unstable a bit about who Jesus is. So he's writing to correct misinformation about Jesus and to exhort believers to keep believing what they've already heard, to believe the truth. There was a crisis in the church and John's writing to address it. So we think about 1 John and we'll see this throughout the book. John's really writing to encourage the saints. He's writing to encourage them and to exhort them so that they can have multiple, in fact, he gives several purpose statements throughout the letter. We see one today and one you'll see in chapter five where he's saying in chapter five, if you, if you just look there in verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know, that you may know 
you have eternal life. The Christian faith is not a hope-so religion. It is a confident, assuring faith that you can know you have eternal life. And in our text today, he says that you may have joy. So John is writing to encourage believers that they may know they have true life in Jesus, in the true Jesus as he's been revealed in the Bible, and that they may have joy. And so that is our focus this morning. Big idea that we have in our passage today is that we need to be sure that Jesus Christ is who he is as revealed in the scriptures, that he is life, that he is the word of life, the true source of life, and that by knowing him, we can have joy and assurance that we belong to the faith. John is writing here to defend the fact that Jesus is the life. Remember the, the gospel of John where Jesus there says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here John's picking up on similar themes. You'll hear very similar themes in this letter as, as, we, as we see and hear in the gospel of John. Well, here he's referring to him as the word of life, the life. And in him, John is saying, is life. And so I want us to see several truths about this life this morning. Several things that we see about this life. First of all, the very first thing that John writes and gives us instruction about regarding Jesus is that he is a life to be known. He is a life to be known. Look at verse one. John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, at first glance, when you look at this, this, this doesn't sound like a letter, right? It's not... It's not written like other New Testament letters are written. There's not that greeting. And so it's, it's kind of an awkward introduction. And even grammatically, it's a bit of a challenge, just the way he's writing here. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Many think it's actually not so much a letter, but a poetic sermon that, that John penned to defend many of these truths about Jesus. And then he spread this letter beyond there in the area of Ephesus to instruct and encourage the believers. John begins with that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. He's, he's, that which was from, that which, or what was from the beginning. Sounds like he's referring to a message. Sounds like he's referring to a message, but John goes on to say, that which was from the beginning has been heard, seen, touched, and he refers to that as the word of life or the life. Again, it reminds us of John's gospel. These first four verses are very similar to the prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and etc. And so you see, see that, and then, like I said earlier, in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is not merely a message that John is referring to, but a person, a person, that which was from the beginning, which we've seen, heard, and touched, this life, the word of life. But what is it that John wants us to know about him? Two very important concepts that, that, that John expresses in this introduction to 1 John, two important concepts about Jesus that are seen here. First of all, he is fully 
divine. That is the first thing that John helps us see. That which was from the beginning has kind of themes of, of, of not just the introduction of, of John's gospel, John 1, 1, but of Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is language that is common in referring to that beginning of time. Verse 2, John says, this life was manifest and had been with the Father. Had been that which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, he says. John is speaking here to the pre-existence of the Son of God, which persisted. He's talking about the Son of God, how how he pre-existed, how he existed before creation even began. Before creation happened. And you see that also in John's writings in his gospel. Uh, You see glimpses of this where Jesus is talking in many different contexts. And in John 8, verse 58, where Jesus is is going back and forth with the Pharisees, and he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. This is declaration of his preexistence. Or in John 10, 30, where Jesus says, the Father and I are one. And if that wasn't clear enough, in Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17, in John 17, verse 5, Jesus is praying. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is not a created being like us. The Son of God is eternal. He existed with the Father before the world was was made. And so John is, is kind of picking up on that a bit. He's talking about that which was from the beginning. And really even before the beginning, because he says in verse two, that which was with the Father before creation, but was now made manifest to us. You see, John is getting to this truth here that Jesus is fully divine. He's referencing this full divinity of Jesus, saying that there was never a time when the Son of God did not exist. But not only is he referring here to his full divinity, he's also acknowledging his full humanity, that he is fully man. Think about this, John was an apostle. He was a companion of Jesus. He was a companion. He starts off with this language here of language of an eyewitness. He said that which we, he's referring to we there, kind of to the fellow apostles, that which we have seen, looked upon, heard, touched. He's basically saying, listen, y'all, I knew Jesus. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. I was there. I want you to think about that a minute. Here we have the words of a man that actually saw and heard and walked with Jesus. This is not secondhand information. This is direct eyewitness accounts that John is giving us. He's saying, I walked with him. I testify as an eyewitness to the fact that he walked this earth and he did the things that he did. It's huge. So why is John emphasizing this, just even in this introduction? Why is he referring here to to these snapshots of the divinity and humanity of Jesus as he's he's unfolding this? So I want to give us two reasons. One is a historical reason. Earlier I referred to the, the, the problem of misinformation and how that's existed from the beginning of time. 
No different here in John's day. One of the problems the early church faced was constant attacks, constant assaults upon who Jesus is. Upon, was he God? Was he man? One of the things we know from Scripture is that he was fully God and fully man, right? No different here in John's day with these, some of these attacks. But one of the early, early problems the early church faced, not only now, but, but even beyond John's day, was the problem of Gnosticism. It had began kind of making its way into the church. And this, this problem of Gnosticism comes from a Greek word meaning knowledge, which basically taught that in order to have salvation, you need to have some kind of internal secret knowledge of God. There was no requirement of repentance or faith. It was just this secret knowledge you had. And, and if, once you gained that secret knowledge kind of in the inner being, you were somehow saved. I don't even know if they'd use the word saved, but, but they would teach that, that salvation came through this secret superior kind of subjective knowledge that, that one would have. And so John is, is, is addressing kind of in a historical moment, he's addressing these kinds of errors that had infiltrated the church by saying, no, Jesus was from the beginning. He was with the Father before the beginning, made manifest to us. We've seen him, we've heard him, we've, we've, we've touched him. He's fully God, he's fully man. But not only was there a historical reason, there was a theological reason. Certain forms of Gnosticism taught errors such as Jesus did not have a literal body. Well, you can see John's picking up on that and, co and correcting that here, right? He, he's saying, no, we touched him. <laughs> like you could see him, you could hear him, you could touch him. He was from God, some of the Gnostics would say, but, but he wasn't God in the flesh. And John's saying, no, he was God and he was God in the flesh. So John, again, is confronting this error by declaring and by emphasizing the full deity and full humanity of Jesus in one, one person. He's combating both the false teachers of his day by confronting this, by, by elaborating on the truth of who Jesus was and is, but he's also doing it in a way to help ground the believers in what was true about Jesus so that their hope could be sure. Remember in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And he's saying that, he's saying that you may know, and the reason this is all important is because you, you, need, to, you need to have faith in the, in the right Jesus, the correct one, the, the accurate understanding of who he is. And when you had that, you would have certainty of eternal life. Jesus is the life, we're told in this passage. And he needs to be known accurately. Friends, these are essential truths to our hope in the gospel. Jesus became known. He is life. He is the word of life. He is life in the flesh. He came to bring life. He embodied life, but he came to bring life when there was death. And if we're to experience that life, this eternal life that's referred to in verse two, then we need to have a right understanding of who he is. Truths about Jesus are, are often attacked even today. This is not just an early church problem. This has existed all throughout the course of human history. One of his writings, John Piper said, I don't think it's so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes people to stumble over the incarnation. 
The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one Jewish man. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. And when God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. That is exactly what Jesus came to do and to be, the measure of all things. He came to be life. He came to be God in the flesh that life may be found and known. He is to be known. He is to be trusted. He is to be followed. He's a life to be known. And that is exactly what John is elaborating. But number two, he is a life to be shared. While John opens this letter with what he, that which he has seen, heard, touched, he mentions that he testifies to it and proclaims it. Notice in verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. In verse 3, again, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So he, he's, he's mentioning this, this, this testifying, this proclaiming. In other words, John sees that the aim of his ministry was to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, this God-man, God in the flesh, and he's testifying to his full humanity and full deity, but to what end? Was this just so that people could be smart and talk eloquently about the character and nature of Jesus? To have public debates and win the debates because they actually got the truth about Jesus correct? No. He takes great pains in this letter, not only in the beginning, but throughout, to proclaim and testify the truth about Jesus for several reasons. But one of those reasons we see right here in this text, look at verse 3. Again, he's referring to that which we have seen and heard. He's saying, we proclaim also to you so that, here comes the purpose, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This key word here in verse 3 is this word fellowship. Fellowship merely means a partnership or to share something in common with another. And we know that in this text, in verse 3, that this idea of fellowship has both a horizontal and a vertical element. So John is saying, if you follow, kind of, kind of, he can be hard to follow, as you'll see if you read this letter. He just kind of, it seems like he's sometimes all over the place, but, but he's basically saying, listen, that which was from the beginning, that which was with the Father, divinity of Jesus, that which we've seen, heard, touched, and, and, and followed, humanity of Jesus, the truth of who Jesus is in his humanity and his deity, he's been made manifest to us, and we proclaim him, why? So that you may have fellowship with us. Two things about this fellowship. One, fellowship with the believers. This horizontal aspect of fellowship. John is saying, I am setting the record straight here about Jesus, the word of life. I'm I'm, I'm proclaiming and testifying to you the truth of Jesus so that you may have fellowship with us. For those who trust in the word of life, those who are given the eternal life referred to in verse two, there's a relational benefit, a relational benefit 
We've just spent five weeks walking through a series we called Together, kind of highlighting some various aspects about our life together as Christians, about our fellowship. And here John is saying that one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I am proclaiming and testifying to you the truth about Jesus is so you can have fellowship. Here again we see this relational benefit. John Stott, great Anglican scholar, pastor, he wrote this regarding this text. He said, this verse is a rebuke to much of our modern evangelism and church life. He said, we cannot be content with an evangelism that does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church, nor a church life whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John is basically saying, John Stott is basically, don't get to John's confused, this is John Stott. He's just basically saying, when I read John, he's, he's saying, that the reason he proclaims and testifies to Jesus and evangelizes lost people about the truth of who Jesus is was not so, so that they could have some kind of shallow, superficial, kind of social club reality. No, so they could have true, lasting fellowship. We need to see this. Listen, one of the goals to testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ one of the outcomes, one of the, the benefits, one of the, the results is so that others may enjoy fellowship with other believers. It's right here, verse three. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So much of the evangelism that has taken place over the last 50 plus years, especially in the West, has been a decisionalism that calls people to repeat a prayer but not calling people to enjoy a fellowship. And that is dangerous. The gospel is about the truth of who Jesus is, the Son of God sent, to, to sent from heaven to earth to live a life of righteousness and, and obedience to God. He goes and dies on a cross to bear the penalty and judgment for our sin. He's raised from the dead three days later to, to declare victory and triumph over death, hell, and the grave once and for all. And the, the, the exhortation of the Bible is to repent of your sins and to believe in this guy. Your life counts on it. Your life now, your life eternally. And the result of that is not just merely a prayer you pray or some kind of knowledge in your brain. No, you are believing in this, this Savior, and the result is to be brought into a community of others who also believe in the Savior so that you can enjoy this fellowship. So friends, a great reminder here in doing evangelism, our goal is not decisions. Our goal in doing evangelism is to see people follow Jesus in fellowship with other people who follow Jesus. That's the goal, according to John. Fellowship with believers. But this fellowship also has a vertical element, not just a horizontal one. We see that it's a life to be shared because we have fellowship with God. John understood that a person that for a person to be rightly reconciled to God, they had to come through Jesus. 
If you're going to be rightly reconciled to a holy God, you must come by faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, this Jesus we have looked upon, we've seen, we've heard, we've touched with our hands, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us, but that fellowship that they're talking about is rooted into a deeper fellowship. Look at this. He says, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This fellowship that the apostles spoke of is a fellowship that the, the believers enjoyed together, but it was rooted in a deeper fellowship with God. Salvation not only puts us in the right before God, it brings us, listen, it brings us into fellowship with God. I think sometimes we think about salvation as just kind of a transaction. We had a problem, Jesus paid for it, resolved. I mean, that's true, but there's much more to the reality of our salvation and conversion that we, we often realize. We are reconciled to God so that we may enjoy a fellowship, a partnership, a, a relationship with him. While salvation certainly binds us in fellowship to other Christians, it most importantly binds us to fellowship with God. And that comes through Jesus in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Friend, I just ask you this morning, when you hear this language, Do you have fellowship with God? Do you have fellowship with God? So one of the reasons John is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit to correct misinformation that's been out there and for, for centuries now about Jesus is that, no, this is who Jesus is. And the reason that I'm proclaiming him is so that you can get him right, so that you can enjoy a community, a fellowship, relationship with other people who, who believe in him, but most importantly, so that you can have a right relationship and fellowship with a God, the creator of the universe. Do you, friend, have that fellowship with God? Do you find God as someone you enjoy? someone you seek on the regular through prayer and communion with him? Or do you see God as a constant threat, a cosmic killjoy, someone you dread? Friends, the goal of the gospel is so that your sins can be forgiven so that you can have fellowship with God. Sin has broken that fellowship. We're born into this world as sinners and, and we, we have a sin nature that keeps us from having fellowship with God. That's, that's all of us. And Jesus came to be the one, the only one, and by having faith in him, where that fellowship and relationship can be rightly restored. So do you have that? Have you put that hope? Have you put your hope and faith in Jesus? Do you have fellowship with God? See, the real story is that sin, when it entered the world, it corrupted all, 
all relationships and most critically our relationship to God. But Jesus came that he might restore it and reclaim it and renew it so that you, friend, can have fellowship. John is telling you that not only can you have your sins forgiven, you can have fellowship with the holy God of the universe. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. Even as Christians, we just kind of skip our way through life and kind of doing our thing. And, and we, we, we somehow see, we, we begin to get all kinds of wrong views of God sometimes. But one of the things that Jesus came to give us is a fellowship with God that comes through him. Are you enjoying, are you cultivating that fellowship? See, Jesus is a life to be known. He's a life to be shared. We share this fellowship with one another and we share this fellowship with God. But not only that, he, number three, gives us a life to enjoy. Look at verse four. John says, and we are writing these things so that, anytime you see so that, if you write in your Bibles, just underline it or do something fancy so that points out, so that our joy may be complete. I told you earlier and referred to it several times, he gives another purpose letter at the end where he's saying, I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. And when you put all this together, when you put that purpose statement of chapter five, verse 13, and you put it side by side, chapter one, verse four, you see that John desires to help his readers walk in joy-filled assurance of faith. How many believers lack that today? And how many of you, if you, if you could just, you come in the door and you sat down in those nice seats there, and you, you say, I'm just a joy-filled, assured, confident believer. There's so much in this life that, that seeks to rob that. And John is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to help us, to help us walk in a joy-filled assurance in the right Jesus. He wants them to be confident. He wants us, by the Spirit of God, wants us to be confident in our standing before God and that our joy, our joy may be complete. These two go together. Lasting joy, complete joy comes from confident standing and assurance before God. This emphasis, this emphasis here on, on complete joys is one we need not pass over too quickly. Nor is it a new emphasis for John. Back in John chapter 15, the gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the source of the fullness of joy. This is something John grounded in historical reality and could speak to as an eyewitness. And it was in direct opposition to the false teachers of the day, those who taught that if you wanted true salvation, if you wanted to have true joy in life, you, you needed to, to gain that through some kind of secret knowledge or some other way. Today that message exists in all kinds of forms. 
You want true joy? There's seven steps to lasting joy. Books, conferences, meditation practices, and on and on we go. Same people saying, here's where you find joy. And John is saying, no. True, complete joy comes in Jesus. Comes in this man who is God in the flesh. And while there's mystery about that, like if you can claim that you fully understand the, the, the full humanity, full divinity of Jesus all in one, and you've got that down, great for you. It's a mystery to some degree. And while there's mystery around that, it's no secret. It's not a secret. John is declaring it. He's pointing people to it. He's proclaiming it. He's testifying to the fact that Jesus is God. He, Jesus is man, and he came as the Son of God to bring redemption. And that we can have a certainty in that redemption, and that we can have the fullness of joy. In four short verses, John has basically showed us that gospel proclamation leads to true fellowship with God and with others, and that results in a complete joy. He not only wants his readers to know the joy he does, but that that kind of joy will only increase to fullness of joy. Friends, we know that this idea of joy is something that many pursue and yet find it elusive. David Allen said about joy, he said, joy describes a reality in life of genuine satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Joy is a spirit of exaltation regardless of circumstances. Genuine satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. And that satisfaction being rooted in Christ. Brothers and sisters, increasing, complete, lasting, full, whatever word you want to use that talks about a lot of it, that kind of joy can only be found in Jesus. I wonder if you have experienced the reality of what John proclaims here. Do you experience this, this kind of fellowship both horizontal and, and vertical? Do you experience this, this joy that he's writing about? Have you trusted in the one that he proclaims and testifies to? Do you think as a Christian, verse three, this, this idea of fellowship, is, is fellowship with God's people a regular reality and priority in your life? You say, well, pastor, it's hard. I didn't ask you if it was easy. I asked if it was a reality because Jesus died for it. And if you're not actively seeking to cultivate it, you're not seeking to actively cultivate something Jesus died to secure for your joy. So I ask again, is fellowship with God's people something you regularly experience and enjoy and pursue and seek to cultivate? Do you find fellowship with God, the sustaining strength of your own soul? Again, Jesus came that you may have that. Fellowship with God. Are you walking in joy and a joy that's over time continuing to increase? Or do you find yourself robbed of joy? 
Jesus came that you may have joy. He came that you may enjoy, that you may be genuinely satisfied in him. Do you have that? And if not, brothers and sisters, I would just ask you to just stop what you're doing in life. Stop right now and cry out to him and, 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 and understand that it's only in Jesus. It, because my guess is if you're not enjoying fellowship, if you're not enjoying joy, it's because you're seeking it somewhere else. Where anything else in this world, anything else in this world except Jesus will leave you empty, will leave you lacking. Only Jesus can give you a true fellowship and a true joy. John says he writes these things so that your joy may be complete and so that you may know you have eternal life. Friend, if you find this kind of joy-filled assurance lacking, then look no further. John is here to help. He is here to help. He is here by the Spirit of God to speak into your life, to my life, to our lives corporately together, and to help us understand how our assurance can be known and enjoyed, how God can be enjoyed. And he begins right here by setting the record straight about the source of it all, the truth of who Jesus is. Finding this assurance and finding this joy must begin with a right understanding and a right belief in Jesus and who he is and what he came to accomplish. Because friends, if you get Jesus wrong, if you get Jesus wrong, you will miss everything. You will lose eternal life, you will lose true fellowship and you will not have lasting joy in this world. But in Jesus, the word of life, you will find life, life to the full and life eternal. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for the kindness it is to, to give, give us a, a word a letter, a book, in a book, written so long ago, but yet so relevant for us today. Lord, would you help us by your grace this morning, as we even hear an introduction to a letter written so long ago to remind us that Jesus Christ the God-man. He is the foundation. He is the fullness. He is the measure of all life. And that there is no true fellowship with you. There is no true fellowship with one another. There is no true joy apart from him. So, Father, would you help us to trust in him? Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there's anyone in this room that's, that's not believing in Jesus, God, that you would captivate their hearts even now. That you would open their eyes to the truth of where true fellowship and reconciliation can happen. And the true fountain of all joy can be found. Would you draw hearts to you through Christ? 
Father, it may be that there are some here today that are believing in Jesus, they're trusting in him, but, but their joy is lacking. Their fellowship was weak. Fellowship with others is weak. Fellowship with you is weak. God, would you reorient their hope today? Would you show them where they're, they're seeking to find satisfaction in this world and help them to realize that the only true source of satisfying joy and confidence before you is in Jesus? God, would you have your way in our hearts that you may be praised? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.